KCSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program, a show all about housing, land use, and the strange online discourse which controls so much of it. Daryl Owens of East Bay for Everyone is back on the program, and we're talking about many things. We're talking about the Slow Streets Program in the East Bay, making streets safer. We're talking about uh, the housing bills. We're talking about a lot of the strange anti-urbanist discourse online, talking about black capitalism and black nimbies in some parts of uh, the state, and finally uh, talking about Berkeley becoming the first city in the country to de-police traffic. So let's just get into things. So welcome back, Daryl. Why do you have a ring on your finger? Uh, This is uh, my dad's old wedding ring on my right hand because I'm not married. But uh, why shouldn't I have a ring on my finger? That's, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I just never seen somebody under the age of 50 with a ring in their finger. So You've never seen finger. anyone under 50 married. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, not with a ring, to be honest. I mean, I haven't been looking. Hmm. I don't know. It's yeah. just weird to see. It That's gave me a very madman mad feel when I saw it. I was like, uh-oh. It's classic. Caps your rings. So a question for you. Is this, is this a backdoor pilot for your own uh, podcast that you've been teasing forever? Hell yeah, dude. I'm still not... I'm still not totally sure on what the podcast should be called. I'm going with Berserkly. I think that's a good name. Yeah, so that's the one you've been you know teasing for a while, and this would this would be kind of you know the idea people expect you uh, just talking about Berkeley news on an ongoing basis. I mean, it would be more than Berkeley, but I don't have a clever or funnier name than that. Yeah, I mean, if you call it Berserkly, I feel people would expect it to be at least Berkeley centric. Of course, at, yeah. at the very least, yeah. Um, but Berkeley can talk about Oakland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was uh, uh, Jonathan Richmond's old record labels, Berserkly Records, back in the 70s yeah. and 80s. Good good record label. Uh, but enough about that. So you're on today. Uh, a few things we're going to talk about. Uh, you know, talking about transit uh, in your neck of the woods. Talking about your efforts as far as taking police out of uh, traffic stops. Uh, and then just also housing this year. How housing this year sucks. Uh, this has been an awful year for housing at the state level. Uh, so what, what, uh, what, what do you want to you know uh, say first? Dude, let's talk about SB 1120 first, because that's obviously the most pressing issue, right? Well, it's the most, you know, recent, and uh, I don't know if it's, it's dead. Do you want to talk about the traffic enforcement thing? I feel like I've said it a million times. Uh, uh, we, you, can, we can talk about it. You yeah, we said it on this show. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely want to hear more. But, a uh, lot's happened since I've last been on. Yeah, I mean, so 1120, I mean, this is the kind of thing. It's, you know, first you got SB 827, and then it came back bigger and better with SB 50, and then they kind of, this year, because it's a COVID year, everyone's kind of playing a little bit safer. So it was just, oh, let me just do a little bit duplex. And everyone got on board. Like, I mean, as far as, you know, people who aren't homeowner chuds got on board. And uh, both houses voted for it. That's usually a sign of past. Uh, but today, uh, or this, this, this year, uh, both houses voted for it and it died. You know, not great. Only could happen to a housing bill, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think I, everyone was like they'd never seen anything like that before, or nothing like that in, in, in recent memory, where both uh, houses vote on a bill and then it just runs out of time to pass. Like that wasn't intentional and deliberate. But yeah, whatever. It's interesting. Like yeah, who who is able to kill it? You know, two years ago, eight twenty seven, you got Jim Bell and like uh, what's his name uh, uh, up in Marin, uh, uh, Mike uh, Mike yeah. McGuire. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. McGuire. Uh, and they, like, just openly just killed it. Uh, and then, you know, they kind of got back on board, died in a floor vote. And this one, it feels like no one, I mean, people voted for it, obviously, but, like, no one really wanted to show it died. 
but there was like this wacky, wacky gambit to just have it die on a technicality, you know? Well, so there's two things going on here. We know that there's some kind of animosity between the House and the Senate. Um, I don't know why I'm saying the House. The Assembly and the Senate. Yeah. Uh, we know that's happening, right? And we know that this bill might have been ca- caught up in the crossfire as the big, like, the big, the big enchilada bill. Um, I don't really know too much about that drama other than it's probably just, you know, lesser assembly people getting mad that Senate people run the show or whatever. Um, after all, it was a Senate bill. Um, but then there's also the other half of the equation, which is the things we can actually talk about, which is that there actually was opposition to the duplex bill. First of all, it started out as like a 10 plex bill. And then it got negotiated down to a, 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 a duplex bill. Um, yeah. And that was like the most tame thing possible. The, the very basic idea that you should be allowed to add a secondary house or that you should be allowed to subdivide your home into a duplex. Like, I, I don't know. I, I grew up in a duplex. I didn't even think about yeah. it. It's just like a, it's like, it looks like every other single family home on the block, except the first floor is one house and the second floor is another house. Like no, nothing else really special about it. Yeah, it's a good um, thing to say. If someone is like just really like you know, kind of uh, a normie, nimby, or just kind of their that's their instinct. It's like, oh, a duplex isn't so scary. Across the street, you have two houses, two people live there. You'll be fine. And I mean, I think most people don't throw a fit over that. It's not. It's like the least scary upzoning you can possibly do. I mean, most normal people don't throw a fit about any kind of upzoning. To be honest, like this is always done by like heavily involved people who are like you know busybodies about this kind of stuff but like let's be honest like the reason why this bill died is because um speaker rendon uh who's speaker of the assembly where's he out of again uh east la okay is east la so yeah i mean he he was like he did this little game where he didn't call it to vote for a couple minutes that was to stall so I mean, just just to be clear, this is this is the last day it could possibly be passed, and for this to happen, it would have to be passed, and then Gavin would sign at the very last minute before midnight. Well, uh, it's a Senate bill, yeah. So it it gets passed by the Senate, which it did overwhelmingly, like without even controversy. Yeah, it goes to the Assembly. The Assembly has to pass it, and then whatever the Assembly passes, because they'll do some bill altercations. The Senate has to, like, sign off on, and then it goes to the governor's desk. The governor doesn't have, like, two seconds to sign it, I don't think. I think that it just has to be done in the legislator. Um, mm, but the legislator yeah. has to certify the bill before it hits the governor's desk, if it's a Senate bill, because it's originated from the Senate, so you have to sign off on the Assembly's edits, essentially. Did they, um, did so they do any amendments, you know, or any, any changes? Um, not that I remember. Uh, but they still have to do the conciliation at the last minute like this. Wacky yeah, stuff. They, have to, they have to do the little certification at the end, which, I mean, whatever. That makes sense, right? Imagine if you wrote a bill in the Senate and it went to the Assembly and then someone screwed with it and you're like, oh, this is your bill now. Like, no, I would, like, reject that, right? So, I mean, mean, in in general, the process is not unreasonable except for the fact that the California Constitution apparently doesn't allow them to do a single thing past midnight. It's just wacky. Yeah, that's, well, I mean, they don't allow them, but the governor could have called a special session. He still still can as far as I know, right? But he won't. Well, yeah, he won't. So, (laughs) obviously. He he technically can, though. I mean, cowardice is more than just uh, the speaker there. But, like, yeah, so they had, like, only a couple more minutes, and they still had plenty of time. Remember, after this bill, they had two police reform bills, the biggest in the state. Um, Most key was that fired cops 
who were fired because of like abuse issues couldn't be rehired for other agencies. Um, and that, and that also you would be able to like look up information about these officers if they were fired for any misconduct stuff. This was right behind the police, uh, right behind the housing bill. Yeah, I don't know. And, I mean, I, I don't know if like this is something like they would have voted it down because their constituents, you know, couldn't get behind any depolicing bill, but you know, just well, letting it, just letting it die gave them more plausible deniability. I don't, I don't well, know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, Rendon, the speaker has like lots of donors from the police union. Uh, numerous police unions and he's like from east la like come on these are all suburbanites who love their cops um and they're all homeowners so what basically happened was is that he was running down the clock and he knows that he's getting tons of pressure from pro-housing activists and even people who did get like anti-housing feedback like um like 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 numerous people in the assembly like like gonzalez um and, and the rest of them were like all oh, like yeah we got feedback against this but this is such a common sense thing. Of course, we're going to vote for it. But of course, they're from like San Diego. They're from the Bay Area. Other representatives. Um, this was a pretty like chill, basic idea. Um, even people who are very supply skeptic on housing um, yeah. were like, yeah, on Twitter, they were like, yeah, of course we support. This is like so basic. We don't even think it's going to do anything. Well, I mean, a, whatever. Big, a big question is kind of you know pe- people people who are supply skeptics. Some some flavor of it. Some people I think have some weird ideology. But one flavor is: Are you doing enough value capture? And, you know, they feel like if you allow apartment buildings and you're not getting value capture, you're leaving money on the table. Uh, but part of that is like, OK, what if you put it to you know, a quadplex? What if you just do a duplex? Do you need to scrape back the value in that? Because you can't do IZ on a duplex because there's two of them. You can't just say like it's either 50 percent, 100 percent or zero. And you're not going to have a duplex work with 50 percent, unfortunately, based on the way they're financed. Uh, so, and that's not even really, you know, that much of an upzoning, but, uh, yeah. So I mean, I mean I well, to say- be fair, you know, so let me just set this up for listeners. The idea behind duplex zoning is you would literally double the state's housing capacity with one swift, like swoop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not, it's easy. You know, it, 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 well, well you would double it in single family areas, which is the majority of zoning areas, um, throughout the state. So it, basically, everywhere in the state that has single-family zoning, which is pretty common, um, look up UC Berkeley single-family zoning. Uh, there's t- there's like a lot of research about which cities have it and what their you know uh, composition is. Yeah, I great, think Berkeley is like seventy maps. something, seventy yeah. percent like single-family zoning. I think San Francisco is like uh, close to seventy percent. Most cities are majority single-family zone. Yeah, all these maps are bright pink where there's single-family zoning. I know, like, you know, Mountain View is one of the better in this area of, like, 50% uh, in Silicon Valley. And I think, like, Cupertino is, like, 95 or something ridiculous. You know, some people are crazy out there. But, but yeah. remember, what that does is that that mandates that the only kind of house that can be built there is a house for one family or one, yeah. or one occupant, right? So the idea behind getting rid of single-family zoning is that multifamily housing, or at least very just at the very least two occupants, should be allowed on every – um, household. That's called a duplex, right? We live. Everyone has seen or been near a duplex. It's not like an uncommon thing. It's. Do you feel like you're robbed any... of? You're, were you robbed of the California dream by living in a duplex? Well, I live in a ticky tacky apartment of like ten units, so I mean. But you said you, said you they... grew up in a duplex. Oh yeah, yeah, I grew up in a duplex. Yeah, yeah. I I guess that's a good point. I was kind of robbed of the California dream. I was robbed of the idea that um, I can't like share land with other people. I guess. Or I don't I don't know. I can't prohibit people. I can't prohibit other families from living on my parcel, I guess. I, I guess that's, you know, I was ruined. Well, um, what, was, what was it like? How are how your neighbors? How are your duplex neighbors? Was it was it? Uh... Um, they were always my family. Yeah, because yeah, because like, why the hell would we all want to live in the same house together? You want to have two separate houses for two parts of the family. 
So, you know, my immediate nuclear family would stay in one house and then, well, I had, there was, there was two, two black duplexes. There was, um, one I lived in, in, in kind of Northwest Oakland. And then there was another I lived in, in East Oakland. The East Oakland one was a duplex that was kind of detached. So it was just like a backyard in between two houses on mm. a single parcel. And then the other one was like a, a Victorian house that was uh, first floor was one residency and the second floor, which was like my uncles and stuff. And the second floor was like um, my dad and my granddad. They used to live in that together. And I lived with them for a short time. Yeah, that's nice. I have like yeah, multi-generational housing, but you don't have to be you know cramped together. You can be close, right, yeah. but also have some privacy. Yeah, you get privacy. Yeah. Like I can go see my relatives whenever I want to by going upstairs or going across the backyard. But I still have my own house to my own nuclear family. You know, we're talking about coronavirus and how density causes coronavirus, which all turned out not to be true. What causes um, the spread of coronavirus, or at least intensifies it, is having a bunch of families living in one uh, uh, home. And and that's not to suggest that there's anything wrong with multi generational housing. Of course not. Um, but also, but, but it's like, nice when you have the capacity because I mean, yeah, like, but it's capacity, yeah. right? Why would you force people to all cram in one house? That's not a, that's just not a, always, especially in the time of a pandemic, a good way to live. And there's lots of research showing that overcrowded households lead to, you know, uh, poor quality of mental health. So, I mean, you know, it's not I, I'm talking as somebody who grew up with like extended family living in my parcel. Look, you can have two separate houses on one parcel. Mm-hmm. It's not a crazy thing. You have address, address A, address B, like literally A, B, like that. It's simple. Um, but so anyways, this was so controversial to like homeowner groups in Los Angeles, overwhelmingly homeowner groups. I think almost exclusively homeowner groups. I don't recall any tenant groups or any equity organizations um, or, or nonprofit, NGO, whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't think any of them were opposing this bill. Um, I know a lot of them personally supported it. Um, but none of them were opposing it like they were doing like, the big upzoning bills like SB 50, and that. But it was just it was just LA homeowner groups. That's all yeah. it was. I mean, and to be fair, it was actually homeowner groups all over the state. But those representatives had you know the the equipment to go ahead and say you know what I don't necessarily care what the homeowner association says. I appreciate your comment. We have a housing crisis. We got to get this housing zone for now. Unfortunately, uh, that level of courage doesn't exist. And some parts of Los Angeles. Yeah, I just feel like they're 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 in the past as far as you know up in here. I, things are things are evolving. Of like you know people realize there's a lot of selfish homeowners, but there's also obviously a big need, and you have to balance that. And I think there's also a lot of extremely active voices in organizations like East Bay for Everyone and you know Peninsula for Everyone and that that you know really put a lot of pressure on people. But like L.A. I mean, I think they're they're moving, but I still like it. Honestly, doesn't feel that different than how they would act in the seventies and eighties, or the sixties, right? I mean, yeah. this is not nothing's new under the sun here. But anyways, so what Rendon did, he's the speaker of the house, is he postponed the bill for a vote, and we're coming up to twelve p to twelve a.m. midnight. When you hit twelve a.m., legislative sessions is over. It's done. Yeah, it's like it's like going out of school. You, there there is no next class. No, no, it's over. Um, and so he held the time for a little while. And then let it off and said, okay, we can go vote. And then everybody voted for the – well, enough people voted for the bill, SB 1120, to pass, which would have eliminated single-family zoning in the state of California. And as soon as it passed – Yeah, it was a bit it was a bit controversial, dramatic because it was short by three and then they called more people in that weren't in. Buffy Wicks was out of the room or stuff yeah, like Buffy that. Yeah, Buffy Wicks had to come in with her child yeah. because they didn't let her vote from afar or whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, and, and that was bad, too. I, the speakers apologized for that, though, and that's fine. 
Uh, but basically, by the time every everything was done, it was, oh, great, it's over. And I think literally it passed at 11.59 or 11.58. No time for the Senate to just confirm it, and which they would have done easily because they voted for the 10-unit version, I believe. So it was over. And then everyone's sitting there on the internet like, wait, 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 what happened? And then people yeah, well, are like... Were they, were they like in their chambers, like just sitting their desks ready to go? Or would it have taken you know a few minutes to get everyone in there? I don't know how that worked. Probably would have taken a few minutes. Yeah. But it shouldn't... I don't think it would have taken very long. Um... You know, it's just it was but literally I think it was like seconds before midnight they voted for it. And so it was this rare situation where you had a pass bill that just died. It's yeah. a, a very big housing bill um, that everybody was talking about. And of course, a lot of the no votes came from L.A. And so, of course, you know, the next day, Los Angeles Times says homeowner groups and anti-genification activists killed the bill. with no evidence. Yeah, so, I mean, they didn't say who these anti-gentrification activists are, Well, right? they did. They did. They said it was the South L.A. Black Homeowner Association group. Ooh. So... And I'm like, oh, you mean these people that, like, don't think that we should have rent control, um, that uh, are opposed to the recent eviction moratorium because they think it's too strong? This is like the, the, the representatives. I was reading like Los Angeles. Let me be clear, okay? I'm not trying to hate on LA Times. I, I like them a lot. I, this is just the way the story was recapped. That very much frustrates me because it paints a narrative that's not real. Sure. Um, but like, you know, it was like the South LA homeowner group. And I remember reading about them prior to the vote. And they had two representatives that LA Times managed to get on, 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 get on the record. Um, one was a black woman and another one was a Latino man. And, and the black woman is pretty opposed to rent control, um, is currently opposed to the eviction moratorium because she thinks it's too strong. Um, well, almost everyone agrees it's too weak. And then yeah. the Mexican guy was a realtor. Like, I'm looking at this like, huh, where's the anti-genification tenant unions at, right? These are just homeowner associations who throw like displacement and gentrification buzzwords out there as they actively fight against things that I think most anti-genification activists would say is their policy platform and so it's, it's it shows how like i i think it's kind of sad that like if you're a like bipoc like homeowner association or basically like if you're a black capitalist yeah you can yeah. get away with being a, a anti-genification group based on nonsense and the funny part about that too was is that in the la times article when they talked to one of the black homeowners she even admitted she's like yeah even if sb 1120 was amended so that it was only low-income housing duplexes i would still hate it because renters don't make good neighbors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like... Or, or what did she say? Something yeah. like that variant. You saw, right? It, it said yeah. uh, our, our renters don't contribute to the community as much. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. That's, like, what the quote was or so, some variant of that. And, um, I, I, I and, and of course, yeah. parking concerns. I can pull it up. I, I'm not sure. making that up. Sure. No, I mean, uh, I, I guess I, I feel, you know, I mean, it's not... It's not really up for a white guy to talk about, you know, black capitalism. But I've definitely, I've definitely like, you know... Yeah, read a lot of like Damien Goodman and stuff, and really, I mean, like his whole thing is kind of he is happy to work with uh, NIMBYs in Beverly Hills. He's happy to work with you know Jill Stewart and Calabasas, and just as long as in the end, uh, you know, kind of there's a separatist. There's kind of you know these these you know black communities are left alone and kind of to to, to kind of just do standard real estate speculation, which I'd say. I mean, I, 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 you know, is it really up to me to say, you know, tiss, tiss? I don't think it is, but 
it's 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 true. What what do you th- what do you think? Because I mean, a lot of people you could you could shoot out by you know a white guy Thomas Lord of him saying like, oh, you're anti-black power. <laughs> it's like which is so funny. You getting chastised. Single by. family zoning is black liberation, according to Tom Lord, a white guy who moved here ten years ago. Okay, yeah. wait. Here's the quote. Here's the quote. Diane Robertson. Uh, I don't know how to say this. Limert Park resident who, like Gonzalez, Gonzalez is the Latino real estate agent, um, is a member of South L.A. Alliance for Locally Planned Growth, said the inclusion of below market rate housing would make the bill less egregious, but there would still be too many problems. As multiple units replace one, she said, neighborhoods would grow noisier, have less parking and have more renters she sees as less invested in the neighborhood. That's your anti-genification group, as according to that recap by L.A. Times. Yeah, is this the, the same hell? thing? Like, like Lydia Koo in Palo Alto says, like, oh, I want more affordable housing percentages, but like, she really doesn't. It's just an excuse. And then she killed a, then she killed a lot of low-income housing to be replaced with like sixteen luxury single-family homes. Oh, that's in the past. Who, who's counting these days? Who's counting? <laughs> no, okay. So let's talk about black capitalism. Okay? Sure. Um, I, you know, because I get this right. I was raised in a black middle-class neighborhood. My, my neighborhood actually, when I was growing up, um, in like. It's Central Berkeley, but all that Central Berkeley, South Berkeley corridor was called Negro Piedmont, um, which for those who don't know where Piedmont is, you know, I don't know, like it's like saying like Negro Hamptons or like Negro Beverly Hills. It was the black middle class of the East Bay. Yeah, like P- the Piedmont, black upper Piedmont middle is, class. It's, it's completely surrounded by Oakland, right? It's the really ritzy exclusive. Yeah, it's suburb. the ritzy part of Oakland. It's the ritzy part of Oakland that didn't want to be part of Oakland. Yeah. Um, so, um, but I grew up in a very like 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 professional black neighborhood of black middle class people who have a lot of the same opinions that this like South LA organization has. And so I understand where these people are coming from. Like I actually this is kind of the thing I was talking to some Oakland residents about like I don't necessarily understand the like plight of Oakland black tenants, right? I just didn't grow I mean I did live in a ticky-tacky apartment um in Berkeley, but like the the experiences of black tenants in Oakland are so much different than the experience of like black homeowners in Oakland who overwhelmingly dominate the community groups, the church organizations and all that. The renters are obviously generally far more working class and generally just don't have as much time for civic activities. And so I was, you know, so my experience of like what black Oakland, black East Bay looks like is the sort of homeowner class where all my family members are homeowners um, and property owners. And and, and that's pretty standard. They're not super rich. They're not not rich compared to like white people. But I mean, they are the like, you know, what you would call the middle class of, um, you know, the black Bay Area. And so the thing is, is that like I understand this stuff where a lot of them because I was talking to Sarah. I don't know how to say her name. Is it Sarah? Sarah Sarah Suleiman, right? Yeah. Um, I was talking to her about this and, and she was talking about how, well, the process is the reason why they oppose it and, and whatever. I mean, you don't explicitly talk to every single local organization throughout the entire California state. But the truth is, is that like the root of these people's concerns is that these are folks who came from disinvested neighborhoods who fought real hard to sort of follow the American dream as black and brown people. And they feel like anything that ruins the suburban aesthetic for them is in a way like targeted at them. They hear fair housing and desegregation and they're like, well, we worked so hard to accumulate these property values. We worked so hard to keep this neighborhood safe at a time when nobody wanted to live here. And now you're telling us we have to have apartments and stuff. Yeah, they're 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 playing by the rules to get ahead, like, you know, like the white you know suburbs have have been getting ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the white suburbs got ahead through, you know, federal stimulus and, 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 and mortgages from the GI Bill that black people were denied. And, um, you know, for years, I mean, I've told I've told any gentrification activists about this for a long time, too. I said for a long time, listen, 
you know, it's not just all gentrification. Gentrification is not as simple as just black people getting priced out. A lot of black people willingly left urban areas in like Oakland in the 90s and the 2000s because for generations, like my own parents, they had been forced to live in urban areas and they were denied the ability to get suburban housing. And when they're finally old enough and they have retirement pensions now and they can finally go get those suburban houses with those big lawns they've been seeing since they were a kid that they were denied as children, you know, obviously they're going to go run and take it. So I'm not saying that like gentrification is not a problem, but it's a lot more complex than this people getting priced out. Maybe to some degree, those people would have bought houses in their uh, native cities and much more affluent areas if they were allowed to. That could be considered part of gentrification. Um, I mean, like, to be, to be very like, clear, but, the but, entire the entire American housing system is about pandering to the suburbs. So I don't care what race you are. It's it, it makes sense if you kind of say, OK, you know, the suburbs are kind of getting a, you know, a good deal i'll take it you know i can't really fault anybody for playing you know playing the system like that yeah i'm not going to tell my mom like hey i mean you've been forced to live in urban areas your entire life you want a big lawn now and you want a suburban house um and you're getting older you can't have that that's just silly i don't i don't know what to say so i understand where these people are coming from at the same time they're ridiculous and insane <laughs> just like just like white nimbies are they're black nimbies black nimbies exist black nimbies hate tenants Black NIMBYs love parking. They exist. They're just no different. They just want the black suburbanite dream, but for them. And I understand those folks. I get them. I came from them, right? My parents yeah. look at those tall new buildings going up along transit corridors, and they're like, oh, sunlight. And, and they, I mean, they, I don't think they care about gentrification. They care about property values. That's what they do. But at the all my neighbors were the same way. But at the same time, it's like you're not on the winning team. That's what, they, that's what these people don't understand. They think that, well, if we just impl- – see, this is – Again, I came from a city that was like a front row seat at seeing how black communities could not adapt white supremacist, you know, for-profit property type tools and try to leverage to use it in their favor. It doesn't always work that way. Most of the time it doesn't work. What they tried in black neighborhoods in Berkeley and, and many other neighborhoods was downzoning to stop housing in their neighborhoods. And it felt really good during the 70s and the 80s when, you know, urban decline was happening to sort of keep values up. But it backfired because all these homes cost two, three million dollars by the time you hit the 2000s. Houses in Oakland now, which were formerly working class houses, now cost a million dollars. And they probably thought, well, that's a good thing because all our property values are going up. But now you can't move anywhere. You don't have the money to move anywhere. Your assets aren't liquid. If you sell, you probably can't afford to buy in the city you're from. I mean, you know, there's, there's a whole host of complications here. And so and, this and, is what the South they're, LA they're, group... Yeah, and their kids can't get. In, you know, what are their kids? Their kids can't do? find housing here. They're gonna move miles away. They're gonna move back to the south or whatever you guys do. So yeah. I mean, you know, the, the whole thing is, is like I'm trying to say. Look, these people aren't on the winning team. They, they they're not gonna become Black Beverly Hills. You you like the people think that if Black people just like I hear this all the time from like a lot of equity groups and anti gentrification groups as well. Maybe this is why L A Times characterized it that way. Not because anti gentrification groups are actually opposing the bill, but maybe just because they were sort of using the same messaging. Um, but like, look, they think that like if black and brown neighborhoods implement Beverly Hills's land use, they're going to get black and brown Beverly Hills. No, it's you implement their land use. You just get Beverly Hills, too. That's all you get. You don't you don't get the black version because the nature of the for profit system of housing that we live in, this predatory system, property value appreciation is 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 entirely predicated on white people having more wealth than black people the income disparities the income gaps uh, uh income inequality that's what it's predicated on so you yeah. don't implement trying trying to take the tools of segregation a lot of black neighborhoods tried this well if we just do the single family zoning thing too we'll become rich 
I mean, to some degree, yeah. It's not in cash. Some, some people but, will. But not everybody. Some people will, but most of you won't. And within 20, 30-something years, there won't be many of you left. And that's what we see in many neighborhoods like South Berkeley. That's what we saw in my home neighborhood of West Berkeley. That's what we're seeing in North Oakland. Now, that's what gentrification manifests itself as. And I'm sure we're seeing it mostly in Los Angeles, too. And so I understand where these people are coming from. But at the end of the day, they made the wrong call. Number one, duplex zoning is not that even that big of a deal. This is such a common sense thing. There's no reason you should have rules dictating you know, yeah. that only one family can live on these parcels. I highly doubt most black neighborhoods in Los Angeles are even single family zoned to begin with. I've heard people say who live down there. To be fair, I'm not as knowledgeable as they are. Um, but I've had people tell me, well, yeah, the black neighborhoods aren't even down zone. It's mostly the white neighborhoods. So oftentimes what they'll do is they'll elevate this one South L.A. group up over the like thousands of white homeowner associations all saying the same thing and acting like it's 50 50 when it's not. It's just this one South L.A. group the whole time. Every single time a housing bill comes up, it's this one group. Um, I don't hear any black homeowners in West Oakland or East Oakland or uh, Compton or anywhere else complaining about these bills. It's this one South L.A. group every single time. And still that lets the media say, well, it's equal gentrification, equal NIMBY homeowners. Like, no, it's not, dude. That's good politics. You know, you just dominate the conversation and you get your voice heard. Yeah, you but elevate think- this one small group of realtors and property owners who are black. I wonder if they would do that for uh, rent control bills. Like, I wonder if for a rent control bill, if a, if a bunch of black property owners, because this happens all the time. Black property owners come out against rent control all the time. I know many of them. And I wonder if when they come out and they're like, I don't want any rent control, <clears throat> uh, people would be like, well, any gentrification groups against rent control. Like, obviously not, because that's silly. I mean, I think I mean, I think there's certainly, you know, a lot of white journalists and so on are kind of scared if someone who are they to talk back to any minority, even if they're if they're anti rent control, if they're doing bad stuff. I mean, this is you know, you get people like Herman Cain, you get black Republicans, you, know, you get a lot of people who weaponize this. I don't know. Housing is a pretty nonpartisan issue. Um, yeah. It shouldn't be, but it is. And so you'll you'll see you'll see people who you think should not be defending zoning codes that originated in segregation defending it um all the way from you know anti-gentrification organizations to whoever else and then you'll to homeowner association then you then you'll see on the flip side you'll see people who support more housing that you don't really think would be on the same side everything from fair housing activists to business organizations right so i mean this is it's it's or 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 whatever corporate shills or whatever uh, neolibs if you will um whatever it is it's never a nonpartisan issue. You can't tell just by whether someone leans left or right what their stances are going to be on zoning policy. I mean, Donald Trump is literally running on single family zoning as his number two issue. His number one issue is less police. His number two, uh, sorry, his number one issue is more cops. His number two issue is protect the suburbs and specifically preserve single family zoning. Yeah, it's 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 you know it scares people in the suburbs and it's it's pretty smart. But you know, well, just, it scares just, people, but they don't like being explicitly racist like that. That's why that doesn't work. Yeah, no, I, th- I mean, it's, he's playing a very heavy hand. I think it's working for some, but I think some people are, you know, not exactly eating it up. Uh, but, I mean, I think it's a question, too, like, just in general, like, you know, there's the haves and the have-nots at any kind of thing. And when you have high, if you have high, uh, you know, prices for real estate, like, what are your kids going to do? What are anyone who's currently a renter going to do? And what's what's the answer? Most people's like, we need to kind of extend the home ownership ladder. We need to have better credit. We need to end redlining. We need to, and like that's I guess all true, but it's only going to help people on the margin. And I guess I really feel like we really need radical solutions that are going to help out 
every renter, you know, because like not everyone is even close to getting enough money for a down payment to get part of this, you know, uh, you know, the home ownership scheme. It's just so crazy how crazy that is, right? Like all I want to do is make transit better and make housing better. And everyone so, is like fighting me about this on, on Twitter. And somehow I've amassed a following of nearly 10,000 followers over this very basic premise that you should be allowed to build multifamily housing and you should take streets away from cars. Like this very basic idea that isn't controversial anywhere outside of this stupid United States. It's just so frustrating. Sorry. So, so let's talk about the last couple of months. There's like this been this big meme of, OK, you know, taking cars out of streets because they're dangerous, uh, safe streets as it were. Uh, that's a racist thing now, you know, and that's this is oh. this has been started. You know, that by, feels like that feels like that was eons ago. I don't even remember. Yeah, this is that's this how is crazy like, the summer was. But it was like literally it. just two months ago. It absolutely was. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of people here. The funniest guy is Tom Holub, uh, you know, of Oakland. But uh, he's a nice know, guy. I like him. Sure. Yeah. I just think it's very goofy that he became the gatekeeper of what's racist, what isn't when he's this white guy who rides, rides a unicycle. Uh, but. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, in your mind, uh, safe streets, I mean, it sounds, you know, sounds to me that... Uh, it was slow everyone, streets. Yeah, slow, sorry. Yeah. Well, I think, isn't safe streets also a thing that people talk about? Uh, yeah, we, they rebrand it however they want to, but the original program was slow streets. Sure. Okay, so slow streets. I mean, uh, people get hit by cars. It's not good. Wait, right? wait, wait. Before we explain this, I want you to listen, listener, right now. If you don't know what we're talking about, when I say slow streets... And what could be racist or bad or genified communities. I want you to think about what this could possibly be. Okay? The yeah. idea of what, what, what could a slow street be that could genify an entire community? Is it making the streets right, slow by adding coffee shops and adding, you know, all these boats? Luxury cheap. condos. Yeah, uh, you exactly. Know, uh, scooters uh, to block the road to, to, to prohibit working class people from driving their SUV to work. What do you profit mobility devices? Street? Yeah, yeah. My for profit mobility devices minus cars. Uh, yeah <laughs> so much subtweeting <laughs> yeah that's so uh, brilliant imagine imagine having such a incredible like faux faux working class faux anti-capitalist like like language <laughs> script that that when you coin the term for-profit mobility devices what it's they're referring to is scooters and like bikes and like other low zero emission technology and not yeah. private for-profit cars it's that's also incredible. funny because the scooters That's don't even make money. They're, the scooters are, are losing money. They're, there's no profit. But, uh, yeah. you know, cars cars doing pretty well, you know. Well, we had to bail out the car industry. I don't recall bailing out the scooter industry. Well, maybe in the future. Uh, uh, there'll be socialism then uh, when that happens. Sorry, but, you were talking about slow streets. I'm, I'm, I yeah, slow streets. Uh, yeah, so describe, describe basically the slow streets program. So slow streets was written by a black planner in Oakland. Um, <clears throat> his name is Warren Logan. And he thought up this really basic idea that because so many households in Oakland, because disproportionately black and brown people are more, well, mostly Latinos and Asians, are uh, higher household crowded than other uh, other groups of people. And that, you know, the pandemic is forcing people to stay in their houses for a much longer period of time than normal. That maybe you could just shut down a couple of neighborhood streets to cars and just let people walk on them and bike on them and scooter on them in safety. And that will encourage people to go outside. In the rest of the world, this is called basic planning. In the United States, this is called um, evil, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's you have a right as an American to drive your SUV on every single street. It doesn't matter if kids are there. It doesn't matter what's going on. You know, just just go wild. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, 
I, I could understand why SUV drivers might, you know, be uh, have some pushback, but it was very weird how this became not just like I like, you know, I like my SUV, but it became uh, like this weird equity issue, and it seemed yeah, just pretty goofy. So the thing about the equity people was like. There, there is some fair criticism to be made that a lot of planning tends to be done top down, and maybe that has some bad elements to it. Um, obviously, we can think back to urban renewal and whatnot. But a lot of people were making these weird equity arguments, saying that it's all process for them. It's all like if you didn't have 15 community meetings about the very basic idea that you shut down neighborhoods, like Oakland just did it. They're like, whatever, just take a couple neighborhood streets, shut it down. By the way, I saw the neighborhood streets. In North Oakland, which is, has a little bit of houses closer together, um, it was a hit. It's a success. It's still in operation. In East Oakland, it was just mainly useless. People kept running over the sign, so it didn't really matter. And um, it, it wasn't really effective or useful infrastructure improvements. It was too ineffective. What, what, um, what, that, what, could, what could have people have done to make sure that you know, people actually you know, did it? Concrete barriers like Berkeley? So you, you think it's just really uh, if you get better tools for the job? It's yeah, dope. this is like this is what I'm realizing about traffic safety. So we're going to talk about policing and traffic enforcement. I'm one of the people who authored the de-policing traffic enforcement proposal in Berkeley. Um, you may have heard about it. What I've learned is is that it's really stupid to try to get cops to do things, and it's really stupid to try and tell people to do things with paint on the ground. Um, so many people out there think that bike lanes are gentrification, bro. If you really think a realtor can get a couple dollars out of their house by taking some paint and, and splattering it on the ground that drivers don't even listen to anyways, you're delusional. Bike lanes are not gentrification. They are useless, right? That's the problem. And so, and so the whole idea here is that, look, if you want to get people to follow the rules, you just got to physically stop them from doing it. Well, no, it's, and I think it's really good like to say, okay, if you're making a rule like paint on the ground is a rule saying don't put don't you know don't drive here, you know don't certainly don't park here, but like how do you enforce it? And if that is you enforce it is you get people with guns to enforce it, that sounds pretty bad. If you yeah. can, if you can find a technical solution, I mean maybe that's not the best way, but it's certainly better than having uh, you know, a dude with a gun enforce it. I told people, look, it's kind of like a freeway overpass. Imagine if you drove along a freeway overpass and there was no walls. You just put paint on the ground and said, hey, please don't drive over the overpass to your death. We yeah. have a lot of people driving over the overpass to their death. Having yeah. a traffic cop there doesn't solve the problem either. It's overpaid. Um, he's probably going to accidentally shoot someone. We don't need, or not accidentally, he'll probably just end up shooting someone. We don't really need this kind of thing, right? All we had to do was put up a concrete wall and people don't fly over the barrier and no cop is necessary. That's I mean, how concrete, other yeah. forms of traffic safety should be treated the same way. Just separate modes of transit. Yeah, I mean, concrete's not, not free. It costs money, but I think, I mean, police certainly cost money too. And I think you build concrete once. $200,000, pensions, benefits yeah. and all, all together. If you want to do that, you can just take some concrete. Yeah, I'd like to know, yeah, well, what's the trade-off? You put one bollard up, you know, what's, what's the overall policing footprint, you know, the, how long is it going to take before it pays for itself? You know, probably not too, too long. I mean, you know, what what you're saying if you put up a police officer? No, no, I'm saying if you if you replace someone enforcing a bike lane or different, you know, traffic rules with a concrete bollard, you know, how long is the bollard going to pay for itself because you have less policing? Probably one year salary. I don't really? know how much it costs to pour concrete, but generally I don't I don't think it costs much more than maybe 2 or 3 years of a police salary. 
Yeah, I think in the end it's probably going to work. But and and I think building infrastructure. I mean, you go around. You have some cities that have the like the worst safety infrastructure. You got to like San Jose is doing a great job of like really nice, uh, you know, uh, you know pylons and concrete like that are really you know thick and and uh, you know real you know real meaty stuff. And that's keeping you know that actually makes you feel safe if you're getting around that a car's not going to just run into you. Does it? I've not been down to San Jose. I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, it's uh, you know, I mean, I'm not. They've I'm been not... doing this cool bike lane pilot in Burke in Oakland, which seems cool. It seems like a mess though. I've seen it in real life. It looks like a huge mess, but I don't know. It must be kind of cool. They take these like weird white flaps and little balls on the ground, and they like stick it to the floor, and I guess that stops drivers from hitting bicyclists. Apparently, it did lead to an increase in traffic safety on the Telegraph corridor. So maybe it has some promise. Well, I mean, so people people weaponize this in some ways. Okay, you know, it's this is part of a way to replace a population because the natives, you know, they don't they don't you know ride bikes. They you know they drive beaters. Then you have white techies come in and they ride bikes, and that's the story they want to tell. Uh, this is exclu- that that's a story exclusively told by people who are just out of touch. Um, it's very most, easy to tell though. People love to hear it. Yeah, it's it's really because a lot of people are like they they have this mindset. That everything that's new and different in a city must be some kind of vehicle of gentrification. And so if you make streets safer for people other than cars, that means for old ladies or little brown kids on bikes and scooters, that that's somehow a pro-gentrification agenda. And look, there's a conversation to be had about how improving street amenities and infrastructure could lead to higher property values. Of course, I'm not disputing that. But oh, yeah, like, yeah. if anyone's lived in these communities, we all know that this stuff is overwhelmingly clamored for by longtime residents who are sick of seeing people get killed by cars, who are sick of seeing their who, who don't feel comfortable letting their kids ride outside without a helmet on and staying on the sidewalk, who are sick of being seniors in wheelchairs who can't cross the street. You know, infrastructure and improvement and, and removing car centri- centrism from streets and in our cities, it's it should not be a controversial position. I think sometimes people twist themselves into knots to try and justify a very regressive position under the basis that like, well, it's about process. We just need a couple of years of community outreach before we do this stuff. And it's yeah. like, I don't know, the community has been asking for safer streets for like 40 years. I don't know how much longer we need to have community outreach for, right? And I'll just say that, I mean, like, even even if you're a bunch of weirdos uh, like us who get involved in city politics, the process, you know, it's... It's a nightmare. I don't. I don't feel it empowers most of the community. It empowers a bunch of weirdos. Uh, but I mean, it empowers okay. people with time on their hands. Yeah, I mean, and I. I don't know. I mean, I, I think you don't want some technocratic czar uh, just with top-down solutions. But you have to strike a balance of realizing that process is not always good, and a lot of people don't don't seem to you know believe that. Outreach is good, but there's a there's a limitation to it, and so. A lot of people are always going to sit there and say I, there hasn't been sufficient outreach after like four years of talking about something. It's just the way it is, right? That's just how life is. But you got to you gotta weigh the need to like make sure everybody knows about something as minor as putting down some paint on the street um, versus the climate imperative, the, the, the housing crisis, the car carnage on our streets. 80, every 88 minutes a pedestrian is killed by a car. I mean, you know, it's – this is all the factors you have to weigh. And so I'm sorry that Miss Jenkins and her house down the street didn't get the 50th notification about installing a bike lane. But at the same time, we can't have little Jimmy getting killed by a car tomorrow. So, you know, you I know, they, they never do this on parking, right? We, we never have this about parking. 
No one's ever like, let's have 10 years of community outreach about making parking easier. Way to play it safe. And playing it safe is make plenty of free parking. Uh, but you'd think playing it safe for, you know, uh, you know, bike lanes is making them safe. But no, you have to be very, very safe. You balance it to the community. You want to make sure that you're not overstepping your bounds. But I love the, I love the double standard. I mean, uh, to mention them again, I just think it was the funniest thing that ever happened. Was it really early this summer? Uh, Tom Holub like said like okay you know i went through you know he doesn't you know, where do you live like temescal or something <laughs> yeah i always get that screwed up uh this no, guy's from san francisco and lives in palo alto uh, from palo alto lives in san francisco that's why he doesn't know what oakland neighborhoods are called yeah and, and he said he like says okay let me see if people in east oakland really want it so he went out on his bike i think it was his bike not his unicycle but then he goes out to east oakland goes around and says you know what i looked around these people i don't think they they use bike lanes and, like, he did this in, like, an hour of, like, you know, riding around Oakland, uh, East Oakland. It's like, hi, it's, I don't know. Like, that's just. That's I actually thing. barely remember this because so much happened after this. <laughs> but but I think, first of all, I don't even know if Tom lives in Temescal. I, 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 I think he's a North Oakland resident, though. Yeah, he went on his bike. And I think he went for, like, a couple minutes, maybe a couple hours or so. And, and said, I don't think he saw anybody on the slow street. So, therefore, it was a failure. Yeah. And, and he also said, too, like, oh, slow streets aren't enough. It, you know, why aren't they slowing down the main arterials? He's like, okay, maybe it's a good point. Maybe we should. Uh, but, you know, it's, I think. He was trying to make the point that, like, slow streets wouldn't necessarily result in better traffic safety. And I guess he was right insofar as that, you know, having little paper barriers isn't going to do anything. Um, asking drivers to be nice isn't going to do anything. You just have to literally stop them. Berkeley does this great with our traffic diverter program. Too bad we don't do it anymore. Um, but our old 70s program where we would just take barriers and block cars from coming into certain streets. Hey, like it works. Don't have to have a traffic cop sit there. Don't have to have cameras and have to do anything. Just put some concrete up. Oh, your streets are safe. And I guess that was kind of the point I was trying to make to Tom and, and other similar detractors is like, I have the unique experience of growing up in a black neighborhood and a white neighborhood. And so I kind of know what the differences are between growing up in a black neighborhood that was middle class to lower income like East Oakland and at the same time also living for a long period of my childhood, my teenage years in North Berkeley, which is very white and affluent. Um, and one of the things I learned is that white kids play in the street and have tons of fun and don't have to worry about getting hit by cars in their neighborhoods because cars are physically block blocked from coming in their neighborhoods thanks to a lot of street design, most importantly just blocking cars using traffic diverters, literal physical concrete barriers to just prohibit cars from coming in. Um, in my black neighborhood in East Oakland, they would have speed bumps to try to deter drivers, but speed bumps just never did anything. It actually encouraged speeding because as soon as you got over the bump, you wanted to hit the gas. And so kids wouldn't ever play out in the street. I remember my dad didn't let me play out in the street in East Oakland, but when we got to you know North Berkeley, we would play out on the street all the time. And so I, I, from my perspective, it's like, look, I don't think it's fair that like one group of people has the ability to really enjoy their neighborhoods and only some people do um, there, but not in other neighborhoods that are more disadvantaged, that are overwhelmingly black and brown communities that are besieged by private automobiles. Yeah, and there's the idea too, like, oh, you want to play in the street? You know, Go out way in the burbs, get a cul-de-sac and like have it so it's like no cars going. But here's the thing, even if you're in a city, if you just kind of like stop the cars from moving around more than they have to, you can turn any street in a city into, you know, a place it's safe. It doesn't have to be a cul-de-sac in the burbs. I don't know. Yeah, it does you can make you can make urban cul-de-sacs. It's not hard. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. It works a lot better. It looks it works a lot better in urban areas than it does in the suburbs. Yeah, because, because things are close together. Yeah, exactly. A cul-de-sac in the suburbs sucks because you want to get somewhere and walk out to the store. It takes, you know, 50 minutes to go down this yeah, Hell Street. 
But if you're in the yeah, city, you can block a car, but a person can still walk through it. It's great. You know, it's fine. Uh, but okay, so I mean, I, I feel just in general, like, it, uh, uh, you know, there's so much just, I mean, it's a big topic, but like gentrification. And I think the big thing is, you know, how do people respond to it? I mean, I don't think there's simple answers, but I think a lot of the simple answers people put out are pretty bad. Like Dan Immergluck is one professor, and he says, like, he actually rails against making parks better. Because if you make parks better, uh, land values go up, and then people get priced out. And that's gentrification. And I'd say, I mean, I can see where you're coming from, but I do not think the key to keeping people in place is to suppress land values by not having parks. I think what we need to do is, like, high land values are good, but we also need to make sure that if you're a resident, you stay there, you know? It's like, we need to make sure everyone benefits, you know, and I think some people can't think that way, and it's I don't know. Um, yeah. look, the truth about what is his name? Dan Immergluck. 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 Okay. Yeah. It's um, easy. The thing about the thing about I'm gonna just call him Dan. Yeah. The thing about Dan is that he subscribes to a very really weird theory that a lot of people subscribe to, which is that like any form of neighborhood improvement is gentrification. So yeah. making things better in your neighborhood is gentrification because therefore it marginally increases property values even if they can never actually estimate how much it does. And then therefore that is why it should never exist. This is an argument for disinvestment, which I don't really understand. This is almost completely at odds with what most people in neighborhoods actually support. So I don't even care to talk about it. Like Twitter talks about this all the time. Like this is a popular opinion. It's not. So when we talk about the ground zero gentrification debate, we're talking about the Mission District, right? Like the Mission District is always what everyone points to as soon as they want to talk about gentrification. No other neighborhood matters. And the thing is, is that like if the Mission District businesses that are run by Latinos want something better and improved on their street, they're going to get it. And no one's going to be making this argument. So I I am very skeptical of this argument. I just think it's so silly when people do this. It's it's. It's people just not liking how things look different in cities, and they're trying to rationalize it by saying, well, it technically increased the property values by uh, 0.000000000125%, so therefore, you can't do it. No, that's silly. Poor people are entitled to nice things, too. There are ways to combat amenities-based rent increases. Uh, first of all, I don't even think landlords think like this. The idea that my local landlord is paying any attention to the quality of my park is very stupid. The idea that my local landlord cares at all about the fact that there's a bike lane painted outside when it's completely useless to most people and it's not even safe is completely dumb. No one does this. Landlords so care gonna, about... They're going to check that in the long term, are prices going up and down? And if they can, they'll give you a price increase. But they're not like looking around trying to optimize to improve their land value. It's like most people aren't that clever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Most people are just like, hey, how much can I get out of these people offering some units to me? Or offering me uh, uh, an yeah. option here. Your landlord probably how... lives in Hillsborough and something and just cashes a check every month. Yeah, like this is not how that works. I don't know. I don't know. People are just very silly. But like, I think this is all predicated on the idea that people just don't like the ideas that like cities change, especially transplants. Because let's be real. Like, I don't feel like this comes from natives too much or, or people who are born in cities. Um, I feel like a lot of people who are born in neighborhoods see the folly of neighborhoods, see the failures of neighborhoods and say, OK, well, here's what works. Here's what doesn't work. There's a lot of people who are very nostalgic. I understand that. But there's also a lot of people who say, hey, this doesn't work. This is a failure. I think a lot of people who tend to be transplants who live in a community for like more than 10 years think they're suddenly the arbiter of culture and like will sit there and be like, you know, this is how the neighborhood was when I came here. There was trash on the street and uh, there was non-working traffic signals and uh, there was no bike lanes and there was no safety. And so that's how it should be. 
when I die. I think that's kind of the mentality people have. They well, it's also a way this. it shows you find you finally are a local is when you complain that it used to be better when you moved in. And if you do that like two years in, you just very quickly became a local. Yeah, two, two, 10, 30 years in, you just do this little bit. And yeah, I, I just think it's so silly. There are ways to combat this, though, like rent control will help. Right. A lot of these cities already have rent control. So, you know, rent control is a way to protect against amenities based increases in rent. If it's actually a measurable thing, haven't seen it, but I, let's hypothetically say it's true that a landlord really raises somebody's rent by X dollars because a bike lane got painted outside or the park is a little nicer than it was a couple of years before. Um, sure. Yeah. If that's the case, then yeah, rent control is a way to handle that. Just cause eviction protection is a way to handle that. There's a lot of ways to handle that that doesn't mean disinvestment in people's communities. I think that's silly. And I don't think this is a popularly held position outside of Twitter people. Yeah, and I think people love culture war stuff. I mean, I was always say this. I mean, I'm a guy. I mean, I I believe in cheap fast food, and I don't even like when there's fancy stuff like, uh, you know, you know, some coffee shop and stuff. And I understand people say, okay, fight the coffee shops, fight the cheese shops, because like that's only for yuppies. And I even get where you're coming from, but like I every don't. everyone, I mean, say I I can understand it, but like everyone deserves safe streets and everyone deserves uh you know nice parks you know that's something every single person no matter who you are that's not for yuppies that's you know i think there's a big the idea that like black kids should disproportionately die from car traffic accidents and that mothers with their children should get hit on foothill boulevard in oakland as an anti-genification strategy is like freaking offensive honestly yeah it's it's the dumbest it's the dumbest thing i've ever heard no one in the community thinks this way outside of some weird little morons on twitter who would never say this at a real community meeting i would love to see some person in oakland who says bike lanes are bad because it it safety for cyclists equals higher rents to go to like a community meeting in east oakland when someone's kid gets hit by a bike which is or or someone's kid on a bike gets hit by a car which is pretty common happens all the time and sit there and be like well we could make life easier for your kid but at the end of the day this is an anti-genification strategy to stop people like me from moving into the neighborhood shut up yeah no and people too like we're saying like oh look at these scooters going for techies you know all these stuff it's like it's all these way like only you know only white people would want to be on wheels and get around quicker you know it's like it's you know wheels are good they've been around for a couple thousand years yeah so the oakland scooter debate is hilarious to me because like that whole thing started out with like well first of all it was really the bay area scooter debate right it was the idea that like these new scooters they were talking about these lime scooters and bike share and everything was like gentrification transportation and really what that was is, is like the Mission District had a huge fight about this. They didn't let any bicycle racks be installed at 24th Street near the BART station because it was going to cause gentrification. This isn't true, by the way. Um, like all they really wanted to do was business groups just wanted to protect parking spaces. And so they're like, well, gentrification, gentrification, gentrification. And they just kept their parking spaces protected, um, which, OK, cool, whatever you guys do you. But in Oakland, this kind of came to Oakland. And then everyone, a lot of the pundits who are like the like the the sort of gentrification critics were like it's new it's different it's weird it kind of has a techie name therefore it's gentrification it's bad and it's like your understanding of gentrification is so silly because within like days of that program being launched it was overwhelmingly being used by like oakland school kids who were like 90 percent black and brown um and i mostly saw young people and, and and black and brown people on these scooters riding around oakland and as soon as that kind of became more popularized, everyone just shut up about it. It was great. But it was so funny how like that 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 narrative where any kind of new transportation improvement automatically means gentrification, it, it kind of shows how unserious some people are about it. Yeah. It's, it's... There are real systemic issues 
and, and reasons as to why gentrification is a major problem. Chiefly, the, the shortage of housing, the influx of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a group of people with severely higher incomes than the existing incumbents, um, the lack of rental and tenant protections, the lack of available uh, cheap owner-occupied housing that uh, middle-class black and brown people could move into in their neighborhoods. These are the systemic reasons, not scooters, not the way paint's painted on a street, all this dumb crap. And I, I feel like this is the difference between people like me who see gentrification as sort of a systemic issue versus people who see it as an like, aesthetic issue. Yeah, it's, it's very, very nice to say, oh, everything is about culture and aesthetics, but, like, it's, it's I don't know, I think it's very unserious, dumb people. Uh, uh, speaking of uh, speaking of different, uh, you know, mobility stuff, uh, why don't you talk about uh, East Bay uh, Transit Rider Union and what, uh, you know, what you're up against, uh, because, you know, it's, uh, COVID's, COVID's hurting bus riders, and, you know, this is, this is something that matters to a lot of people. So, look, here's the truth. Um, we're going to probably lose our transit system unless we do something. Uh, or lose a big, we're, big we're chunk doomed. of it. You're going to lose a large chunk of it, about 30% of it. And that's going to be, in some neighborhoods, that's the entire neighborhood's gone um, in terms of coverage in Berkeley and other neighborhoods in Oakland. Um, basically, you know, the lack of transit riders due to COVID-19 uh, has caused a huge budget deficit for transit agencies, particularly AC Transit in the East Bay, which is our local bus system. Um, I use AC Transit. I've been a lifelong AC Transit user since I was like four years old. Um, and I'm really scared to see it absolutely collapse. I saw it collapse in the 2000s. People made transit bus rider unions then. People uh, tried to fight against it, and it got ir- you know irreversibly changed, and I think for the worse, and we're doing the same thing all over again. So this time, now that I'm older, I'm not in middle school anymore, we can actually do something about it. I think that we just do not care about public transit users, particularly bus riders in the Bay Area. Everyone talks about BART riders because they're cool and interesting and they're train users, but not enough people talk about bus riders. Um, and so the bus riders will generally get the short end of the stick. There's no one to complain to. There's no one to organize with. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of issues with there's bus riders being treated like crap. And, you know, so I was like, okay, it's time to make a transit union. We wanted to do this for a long time because, again, bus riders get no coverage. But I think we, we had been talking about it like, let's make one, let's make one, let's make one. And I think it wasn't until the George Floyd protests where they shut down AC Transit Service out of nowhere. That's our public transportation system. They're shutting down to comply with the curfew, the curfew that is illegal, in my opinion, and, 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 and frankly, like unjustified. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? You have no respect for riders. It's time to make a bus riders union. And so that's what we did. Well, so, so yeah, they shut they shut stuff down for the curfew, uh, you know, a bit ago. But then, like, I think just like last week, you were like reporting they just cut down, uh, you know, a bunch of routes with no, yeah. no no alert and just like oh yeah if you go on and check it out it's like oh sorry no buses it's like that's not it was it it was the worst fiasco i've ever seen on, on ac transit in many years and and they've done stuff like this but not this bad so what happened was is that ac transit had a coronavirus outbreak among some operators okay um i mean that's not good but like i understand that sometimes <clears throat> that happens and that's a problem ac transit then impromptu shut down they were already shutting down Week, weekend service on some lines but they shut down about 12 lines in the entire like berkeley north oakland corridor el cerrito uh corridor they just shut it completely down yeah and didn't tell a soul until they did like an 8 a.m text message alert to people who were subscribed to their text message like uh, alert times which like nobody has it's so hard to sign up for this thing. When Uber threatened to shut down, everyone got a text message about that. 
I don't even use Uber. I got a text message from Uber like, yeah, we're going to shut down. Like, who the hell are you? You're you're a, you're a what? You're a for-profit like rideshare company and you're telling me like you're the public transit agency you're shutting down? Yeah. But see, that goes to show you how much people rely on Uber. And then when AC Transit shuts down, a system that is overwhelmingly used by black residents and Latino residents, a system that is overwhelmingly used by lower income residents who do not have cars in the East Bay, which is a lot harder to do than, say, San Francisco. So it's a lot more crucial that you tell people they just casually stranded like hundreds of riders, and, maybe even thousands. And this is and this just is stranded them. Yeah. And this is why people say, like, I need to get a car because, they, you know, it's it's very hard to live a life and deal with this stuff. That was a huge ad for a car. That's all that was. Sucks. And, and that was on Spare the Air Day, too. Cool. And so me and my friend said, look, we're part of the Bus Riders Union we just made, East Bay Transit Riders Union. We're going to go out and we're going to alert riders. Because I saw all these people. I was actually coming back from the Apple store and I saw all these people just waiting for buses that were never going to show up. And I was like, oh, do they know that the buses haven't been, that have been canceled? They haven't told anybody. People are calling me saying, hey, Daryl. Where's the 51B? Like, how would I know? Right? It, it sucks, but like, it sucks when you're the go-to. I, it's of the, the people I'm the go-to yeah. guy now. Like, what's happening? I don't know. I mean, because I, I, they shut down all the bus service on Thursday. A lot of the bus service on Thursday. But a lot of the core lines were still in effect. So my buses got canceled on Thursday. And I was angry as hell. But I said, whatever. You, you alerted no one to this. Berkeley side actually ran a story talking about how people were stranded. Um, I, cause I had to like push Berkeley side into reporting on this. This is so frustrating, right? In San Francisco, when Muni shuts down, tons of news articles are on it. Every television news article, every television news publication, uh, television broadcast media is on it. Uh, San Francisco Chronicles on it. San Francisco Examiner is on it. But when like bus service gets hurt in the East Bay, it's so hard to get local news coverage to get reporters to understand that like people want to know about their local transit system and what's happening with it and they read your articles not everybody's a driver you know the east bay has like the second highest ridership especially berkeley oakland area than anywhere else outside of san francisco in the bay area so it's crucial that you tell people what's going on so i had to like push them to do it and berkeley i i i i pitched this to a bunch of articles to a bunch of publications none of them took it up except for Berkeley side, which I appreciate. And they covered how people were stranded by the cutting of bus service on Thursday. Then we go into Saturday and it gets far worse. They cut the core lines. They cut all the crucial lines that everybody rode on, not just the little neighborhood lines that they cut. They cut big lines, the 51B, the, uh, the NL, which the 51B serves Berkeley on University Avenue and College Avenue. That they, they cut the NL. Um, which serves MacArthur Boulevard through East Oakland. You know, they cut all these lines and there was no lines running and, and all of Berkeley. The 18 was cut. You had some rogue drivers who felt bad about this, who were going out there and taking their individual buses and just driving the whole route, trying to pick old people up. Wow. And I mean, that's, but, I mean, and it's like uh, that, that, I mean, that's, yeah, that, I know. Salute you. That's, that's, right? that's great. It's also not, you know, ideally you have professionals who can deal better with COVID stuff at a time like this, but you know, it's, I mean, so, if people have major to around, salute to the ATU. Yeah. Right. Salute, major salute to the, uh, uh, uh transit operators union. I, yeah. I, I'm very happy for them. They're good folks, but like, that's not how you run a transit system management. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. All these people are out here. So, so me and my friend Manish and, and another person too, um, three of us all together, got out and said hey let's just ride our bike around town or in my case i actually was in a car with a friend and sadly i hate to say (laughs) 
and let's go alert people that the bus service has been cut. And we took pictures of folks waiting and we posted it online. We said, this is the face of the riders you're leaving behind. And it got major coverage in KQED and other publications. And it was like, finally, people are giving the East Bay the transit coverage they deserve yeah. after years of neglect. So what's, what's it been like, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, as far as, you know, staying safe when you've been on the buses in AC Transit during COVID? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's not as bad as Muni, right? Muni buses are so crowded in San Francisco, I wouldn't ride them. I refuse to ride them. I, I have a friend that lives at Fisherman's Wharf. Um, nice little lady friend. I go see her every now and then. Uh, I used to take the 30 over there not doing that anymore hmm. now I'm taking I'm just walking I get off at Embarcadero I walk all the way to uh, F- uh, Fisherman's Wharf it's long it's an exercise but I'd rather chance it than take the bus right because I don't feel like it's just too crowded now AC Transit does it much better um, they have rider limits that are maybe a little bit more saner um, and I would say that for the most part I felt pretty safe on AC Transit but they could still do things that are a little better sometimes the buses just get crowded AC Transit can do really basic things like opening all the windows. I don't know why this is so hard. I understand because maybe the smoke season, but but it's clearly not because of the smoke, just because they haven't done it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Opening the windows and and because it's it's mostly because AC Transit shut down all that service to clean the buses after the coronavirus outbreak, mm. which is silly because the bus coronavirus science has shown so far, research has shown that the virus doesn't really spread through surface contact. It spreads mostly as an airborne virus. So you want to have air circulation in your bus system. And that's kind of what I'm pushing AC Transit to do. Yeah. And BART's taking that seriously. They've, they've like, I, I don't know if it's just like they've already got that in their way, but they're really, really stressing the fact they have air circulation every 70 seconds or something like that. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, also is, I mean, it's uh, one, there's two things, you know, uh, bus riding during COVID, it's, it's, you know, it's not ideal in any case, but then afterwards, is it going to be healthy afterwards? And unless uh, you get the funding through, whether through Prop 15 or other stuff, you know, it's it's pretty scary whether, uh, you know, whether our bus lines are just going to continue to put people in a bad place, you know, who are usually the most most vulnerable in our in our cities. It's so frustrating. Every single person paid $20 in taxes on tax day. Every single person. We could have free transit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. So that's okay. We could have free transit. We could have if, if if we just got rid of Prop 13 exemptions on commercial businesses, we could make up a large percentage of our deficit for the bus program. We could seriously expand service if we treated buses as the priority rather than some cute little shuttle for poor people. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's it's like it's used like what is the least we can do to not feel guilty. I feel like that's the way these places these these systems are administered. They're not real transit. We should be shutting down highways. Yeah, that'd be nice. Not not bus systems. What's going on there? Yeah. So I mean, that's another dumb discourse. I think a lot of people fight all the time about free transit. And it's it's dumb. I mean, I feel like uh, I mean, I just say I think there's a lot of agreement. I feel a lot of people say, "Oh, how dare you say free transit is a thing?" You know, it's like I'm a I'm a smart guy, and that's not plausible. It's like if we want it, we could do it. The, the problem is we don't want it. So free transit is a little complicated. I've gone back and forth on this. I noticed. I think the truth is is that there's there's a I mean, I'm pretty solidly on the free transit side now, but there's a there's a sort of back and forth between two types of people. There's the transit advocate advocates and activists who are urbanists who understand that there's systemic issues to why transit fails in the United States compared to most other countries. 
What they understand is that by not prioritizing transit and making driving as hard as possible, effectively cars are allowed to dominate our streets. It, you know, a lot of people think, well, you have to make transit as competitive as cars. No, you have to disadvantage cars alongside making transit competitive. Oh, yeah. This is, you know, that's how it works. But people don't understand this. On the other side, there is what are described as transit justice advocates who almost like single issue just care about fares. And so they just want to get rid of fares. And they think that by getting rid of fares, that will that's their that's their any capitalist justice, I guess, on the public transportation system is getting rid of fares which i agree yeah because the fact is first of all it's really easy to do for buses just because few people have done it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean it can't be done again if everybody just paid 20 bucks on tax day free ac transit for everybody easy yeah easy it's not it's not hard to do at the same time don't sit there and be surprised that when you make transit free that doesn't automatically uh, reduce a lot of cars off the road that will get a lot of people riding, especially for high reliability systems like BART, which to be fair, BART's much harder to do because it's 80% fare recovery ratio, which means that 80% relies on fares to operate. AC Transit only rec- rec- recuperates like 15% of its uh, cost to operate through fares. So losing fares is actually much easier for AC Transit than it is for BART. For BART, it would be damn near impossible without some major alternative sources of funding. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time... Because BART mainly relies on property taxes and I think some sales tax revenue. Um, but at the same time, it's important to remember that like it doesn't stop with free transit. It means prioritizing transit over for-profit mobility devices like cars on our streets. It means transit Transit can't just be free. It has to be faster than cars. Yeah. It has to be more dependable than cars. And that means getting cars off the road. But also, yes, urbanists and, and, and transit advocates and activists who don't necessarily see eye-to-eye with that transit justice people – Free transit for buses is such a smart thing to do. If you want to make transit competitive, you want to make the bus system competitive, why don't people ride their city buses? For a lot of reasons, it just doesn't come on time and it's not fast. Okay? That's the chief reason. It's not fares. But it's not about just the one thing, though. Yeah. They couldn't make transit work for every part of life, so they broke down, they got a car. And then once you have a car, it's really hard for any particular trip to use the transit because your car is probably going to be cheaper and faster. Here's what urbanists have to understand. Urbanists, look, you make transit faster and better, sure. But at the end of the day, do you pay $2.10 to turn on your car? No. Imagine if you did. That'd be great. I guarantee you a lot less people would ride their cars, drive with their cars. A lot more people would not drive their cars if they had to pay $2.10 every single time they turn on the ignition. Yeah. When you do that, you are in a way making – you're providing a price barrier – for people that make it harder to use. It doesn't matter if it's better on paper. You, It's not sufficient to just make transit better. You have to do a psychological thing where you have to convince people that they're getting a bang for their buck riding transit, right? Look, when BART's free on Spare the Air days back in the 2000s when they used to do that, the, bus, the trains would be overcrowded. Tons of people would ride them because they thought that, look, BART's fast, BART's convenient, but BART costs a lot of money. So it's kind of hard to weigh with my car sometimes. When they made BART free, oh, no question. Everyone takes BART because BART became super competitive. It's fast, it's frequent, and above all, it's now free. Buses are not fast and they are not frequent. But if you make them free, that's one of the three downs to sort of compel the average commuter who goes, hmm, you know, I might have to wait a little while longer, but at least I'm not paying a fare. 
Yeah. I'm yes, gases are fares. Gas is fair. I understand that. But people don't look at gas the same way. They, they, they fill up their tanks every other day at the, at the most. It's just not the same way as having to pay a fare every single time you board a bus. It makes it hard to do small trips because small trips don't become cost competitive to go several boxes oh, down yeah, for three $2.10 bucks. Cents yeah. a fare or, yeah. or three bucks a fare. You know, that's, that's any, that, no one's paying three bucks, especially when you have to do it with cash, right? It's one thing you have to do with your credit card. People wouldn't care as much. You feel that cash going away for a crappy bus ride. Oh, it sucks. People are not going to, it's not competitive. So you have to make transit competitive. That's what urbanists don't understand. It's not just about making transit better than the car. It's about making it look luxurious. It's about making it look, you know, cost effective. It's about making it look like it's the easiest thing to use. You want to make cars harder to use, buses easier to use. Yeah, I mean, a big thing, take away free parking in, uh, you know, public streets. You know, that's going to make it that much harder to just drive everywhere you free need. Free parking, yeah. ga- uh, eliminating free parking, getting gas taxes, lots of things we can do to penalize drivers yeah i hear some people talk about like okay which are the best things to go to free fares would it be the ones where you only like it's already 85 percent subsidized so it's like oh just make it 100 some people say it's the other way around because if you have high fare box recoveries through fares it at least means it's reliable it's being used people need it which means you at least in theory could shift it to other sources you know and i think you could it's a it's a difficult political lift but, you know, obviously, if if BART, if Caltrain is having high fare box recoveries, uh, you could shift that to property taxes, uh, you know, if it was legal, you know, but I think you, you absolutely need to. And, I mean, BART right now, they're they're developing the parking lots to do uh, value capture. You know, things are happening. It's really, yeah. Um, look, the truth is, systems like BART's just too hard. Yeah. 80% fare recovery, you can't make that work. You would have to do a massive tax overhaul. Buses, though, easy to do. But let's talk about BART TOD, because I think that's kind of interesting. Isn't it funny how a very basic idea that's actually pretty common in a lot of social democratic and democratic socialist countries in, in Europe, that, like, you should generate, like, value on public property to tax it, in America, for some reason, is considered by many activists to be private profit for public land or some crap or some kind of scam? Yeah. It's really funny how that works. It's, 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 I don't know if it's a lack of understanding about things, but like we talk a lot about BART transit-oriented development. And you can have your opinions about that. It, it, I mean, it's definitely climate imperative. Um, you can talk about whether it's affordable or not or whether it should be better, whatever. But it's funny how people act like only public land by transit agencies should be only for subsidized housing. Like you have no idea how value capture works. Yes, you want more subsidized housing, of course. We want as many as we can possibly get. But if you generate private profit on public land, that's a form of value capture because that land's not being sold, right? This land is never being sold. When you see condos and apartments rising on former BART parking lots, which is an environmental good, the land isn't being sold. It's being leased. BART has taxing power. It's on public land. The reason why we can't do anything to corporations is because they're often on private land. It's on public land. That gives you the leverage. Right, it's just weird. It's just weird. See, like of all not- things, if they like, if you're gonna build, you know, some anything else, like anywhere, I'd say if anyone has to be a market rate landlord to get money, I'd rather it be the public transit agency and not just some you know landowner who sucks. Yeah, like I don't want to go into literal Georgism, but it's like literal Georgism, right? It's the idea that like you have public land and you're generating wealth. You're generating, I don't know, however product production or value or whatever marxists say capital 
and you're generating it on public land. That gives you taxation power. That's how it works. It's not a scam. It's a good thing. Yeah. When you put market rate housing on public property because it generates revenue for the city that goes back into public services, like running the trains faster. Also, in most cases, it actually produces more affordable housing than just doing only subsidized housing, which means the city has to entirely pay for it or the agency, which doesn't have any money, versus a private organization paying for your subsidized housing in order to get really convenient land locations that they rent out. Remember, all that development on BART parking lots, they're not. it's not being sold. It's rented. It's a land lease. This, this doesn't belong to them. It's always going to be BART property. It's a, it's a pretty good deal. I think people just don't think about it. Though. I think a lot of people are just reactionary and they're like, well, I used to park here, but now I can't, you know, public land, private profit. It's like, dude, come on. This is not how, this is not how value capture works. You spend so much time talking about value capture. This is literal value capture. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you can get a, you know, a bunch of subsidized units and also have giant condos and also have retail as opposed to just having like a two story 100%, but now everyone's going broke because they're not even capturing the value. I'd rather have you know, higher numbers. Like the affordable housing, 100% affordable housing complexes. People say that 100% part. I'm like, wow, that means we're getting so much more. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It means you're getting a percentage of an unknown denominator you don't know about. It's <laughs> right? real dumb. Like, it's that's, real dumb. That's like, it's going to be, it's going to be usually a hundred homes. If it's a hundred percent, it's a hundred over a hundred. It's a hundred homes, right? You might get 200 if it's two affordable housing developers. They're not usually getting much more than that. Anything more than that is going to usually be an inclusionary project as part of a market rate development. And so you got places like Balboa Reservoir, which is building 550 affordable homes, I believe. And they're building more than any other low-income housing project in the entire city of San Francisco as part of a public-private partnership with affordable housing developers and market rate developers. I'd much rather see that than only luxury housing and only subsidized housing that is only a couple hundred units at most and is not nearly as much as these market rate, half affordable, half market rate projects. The total quantity of homes matters, not the percentage. I don't care what the percent is. I don't want 100% affordable housing on North Berkeley Bar Station. It's only going to be 100 homes. That's crap. I used to work for an affordable housing developer. They can absolutely contribute and they will to these big projects, but not alone. They can only build like 100 units they can't build much more than that. And that location, so, I mean, it's, yeah. it's just silly. That location is so valuable. This is like this is like a once-in-a-lifetime public land right near a subway stop. You don't want to put 100 things there. You really need to max it out. I don't know. You want to max the housing out. I don't know why people don't get this. Yeah. So, okay. So, you talked about a lot of stuff. You said you've, you've talked about it so much in other outlets, and you don't want to, like, go over the same stuff. But give people, give people the general summary of uh, how the Berkeley depolicing for traffic stops has been going. Like that whole the whole the whole thing for kind of moving this forward. So our idea in Berkeley is pretty simple. Me and another group of cyclists came up with this idea that we should just eliminate cops from traffic enforcement. You probably heard about this idea and you think that well now you can just go on to Berkeley and speed as much as you want to. No, that's not what that's this is not what this means. What it means is that we treat traffic enforcement a bit more like we treat parking enforcement. Parking enforcement is almost always done without a gun and without a cop. It's just a person, an attendant who goes out there and, and gives your car a ticket and moves on. Meter maids, right? or did it, there's did no, yeah, meter there's maids? meter maids, meter, meter masters. Is yeah, there, what's the general? The, 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 te- the technical term is parking enforcement. Meter maids is a little derogatory. What's, what, is there a general? It's a, little, it's a little, it's a little belittling. It's a little belittling. Okay, I, I feel I, I, I mean in a positive sense, but okay, it's a positive thing now, right? Like when I was younger, meter maids was like a negative thing. Like ah, you're not a real cop. You're just a meter maid. You can't do anything. Now it's like hey, you're not a real cop. You know, it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Um, but but 
it's like having meter maids but for traffic enforcement now people will say and we got this a reaction a lot from police unions we got it from a lot of people go what do you mean but people might have guns in their cars look only six police officers last year have died from traffic enforcement stops right from traffic stops it's not dangerous to cops. Six, six, Numerous six cops, research six cops, and studies. Like, how big? Like talking about yeah, nationwide. And, and nationwide, yeah. Wow. Not not in the city of Berkeley. Six cops. Yeah. Six cops died. Re- a research recently published in the Michigan Law Review shows that like out of millions of traffic stops, you are likely to get assaulted like one out of every million. Vast majority of them are never just don't have any guns present at all. This is just not a thing that like traffic cops are getting shot all the time. This is like police propaganda. It's just not real. It's also I did like the escalation. If people are like, you know, if it's escalating because they're worried there's going to be, uh, you know, the police draws a gun on them, then you have to. I, I mean, the thing is, if this is. It's not just about, it's not yeah. just about de-escalation. I mean, that's part of it. But the other part is that, like, you know, when you get stopped by a new Berkeley unarmed traffic agent, that they're not going to go looking for warrants. They're not going to go looking through your entire history. They just need your vehicle number. They're going to write you a ticket and then they're going to go. Hmm. that's it and so then it doesn't become this suspicious thing for people where black people have to fear they're going to get shot in a traffic stop as is so frequent and common in this country and yes a lot of people point out that it's not even about the traffic laws it's oftentimes about a pretext stop to actually commit a criminal investigation on people that the cops are suspicious of this is true 67 percent of all police and civilian (laughs) interactions in the united states are through traffic enforcement or collision response Right, it's ba- collision response will also be part of yeah. the traffic enforcement. It's, it's basically stop and frisk, um, but it's in a car. Yeah, it's stop and frisk in a car. Yeah, you can stop and frisk anybody you want to, but you just use the excuse of a car. Oh, you, uh, you, you, you passed the double uh, lane merge or whatever. Your lane merge was bad. Yeah. I, oh, your tags are expired. Right. Yeah. So you, now we can go conduct a, a free investigation on you without any kind of warrant. Yeah. Even as a white guy, I've like been out like you know sober on like St. Patrick's Day, getting pulled over for like improper lane usage. Like, what does that even mean? But like, you just you can pull over everybody if you think you might catch somebody for something, you know. And obviously, this falls far, far more on minority populations because that's the point. That's what they're doing. Yeah, so the idea here is that, like, look, if 67% of all police interactions in the United States are just through traffic enforcement and collision response, just move that to unarmed teams. Just like we do parking enforcement. There's no need that a gun needs to be present to go write someone a ticket. And so that means not just getting rid of the types of... that that that, that This is less about just getting rid of the guns and the badge. It's about transforming how you do traffic law. And a lot of people will go, well, but then everyone's going to speed and do whatever they want to. They can already do that anyways. Remember, this is one of the deadliest countries. Car crashes and car accidents are like the chief source of deaths in the United States up there with gun violence. Yeah. Right. But I guess so like, even ideally, yeah, so the status yeah. quo doesn't work. Yeah. So so people are going to be like, well, but things will be different. The status quo doesn't work. This country is the deadliest on earth when it comes to cars in any industrialized country. OK. Yeah. So policing the open roads doesn't work. I know a lot of urbanists think, well, we just need more cops to get but get cars out of bike lanes. No. So wait, you just need to build bike lanes so that cars can't drive into them and then they're safe. You need to build tra- public transportation so people don't have to drive. These are the systemic solutions to traffic violations. And the de-escalation aspect is making sure that unarmed enforcement agents are conducting traffic law. Because there's no reason why a gun is necessary to write someone a speeding ticket. Well, so, so tell me, I mean, just, just say, I mean, like, when is it serious? I mean, a, a, a car, you know, especially if it's big, it's, it's a deadly weapon. And let's say a guy's drunk and is driving around is an actual risk. 
And let's say, you know, like, I don't know, like, how would this escalate if there really is like an actual dangerous situation like that? We have a lot of scholars working on this. There's a lot of criminology people who have been thinking about this idea for a long time who are really excited about what we're doing in Berkeley and are totally game for this. Drunk driving's hard. We don't know how to deal with that. What we definitely have down is civil violations. So we're talking about basic stuff. Like, for example, Los Angeles Sheriff Department shot and killed a black man just a couple days ago because he was riding his bike the wrong way. Now, they use that as a pretext stop to really just try to do a search on him, and we all understand that. But this is one less tool in the toolbox, right? This would also, we would also pass a law to prohibit police officers from doing pretext traffic stops and suspicion stops Hmm. um, of people like this. So this would be one of the ways we could solve this. But, you know, I can't answer the issue with drunk driving because Mothers Against Drunk Driving came out against us. There was a lot of people who came out in support of us, and Mothers Against Drunk Driving, along with a lot of police unions, came out against us. I don't know about drunk driving. It's a lot harder to do. Ideally, the solution to drunk driving, though, to me is just if someone's drunk, get them out of the car, put a boot on their car, and they can't do nothing with it. Here's the thing. How about, right? how about you don't have parking lots at bars? You know, that's a good idea. I mean, yeah, that's part of it. Funding public transit. That's why we made a transit union. Yeah. It's part of it. Yeah. But uh, I don't want people taking a, a, a using a car. I want them to take the bus when they go to the bar. But at the same time, it's like. I, I, we don't know what we're going to do with, with drunk driving. That is the big taboo issue. Sure. But drunk driving is not the chief cause of traffic enforcement violations in the United States. Not even close. Yeah. And by and large, you know, civil violations such as running a stop sign just don't require a cop. So, uh, I mean, is there is there like prior art? Are there places that have done this to any extent that you're kind of working off of? Or are you actually really like pioneering in Berkeley doing this? Well, we're pioneering it in the country. No one in the United States has ever de-policed traffic enforcement before. I'm talking about internationally, though. Is there any other... Oh, internationally, yeah. It's been done in many cities. I mean, for example, UK police don't stop people and have guns when they do traffic stops. Well, how do they... It's just how, whatever. How do they deal with drunk driving there? I'm not really sure, but I know how they deal with any other kind of crime there. They just get their tasers out. They generally don't tase anyone for the most part. Hmm. And they kill like two people a year. I think in some many years, they kill like zero. Yeah. UK police doesn't kill more than three people a year. Most key years, it's zero to two. So, I mean, yeah, and drunk driving, we know, is probably a problem there because, you know, pubs and all that. People still solve it fine, so. So, I mean, there's been, there's been some pushback, too. I think this is I mean, this is one of the dumbest stuff is just because there's – because, you know, Daryl Owens has been behind this. Uh, this is urbanist inflected. So, de-policing traffic stops is like some people saying, oh, this is this is an urbanism thing. Is that, is that worth talking really about? It's just dumb. I mean, I haven't really heard it. I thought Sara was chewing you out for this. Oh, I mean, look, yeah, a lot of people aren't going to like the fact that Urbanist wrote this and Cyclist Advocacy Orgs wrote this um, because, you know, it's a little inconveniencing for some people's narratives. I think her point is, is that, like, look, the, just because you get rid of traffic enforcement from being armed with cops doesn't mean that all of a sudden um, police officers won't be able to make suspicion-based arrests. We understand yeah. that. It's not just about replacing cops with – I think that's the problem. Like people don't understand the whole – this is in the spirit of defunding the police. The point about defunding the police is not just like you get rid of their money and then just everything gets better. The idea is that you take their money and reinvest it into systemic solutions to, to the crimes that we see that we often get the police to help solve or in many cases not help solve. And that's the idea behind traffic enforcement. Replacing cops with unarmed attendants is a very appealing part that gets the headlines. 
But what doesn't get the headlines as much is like systemic solutions to traffic violations, such as better infrastructure and more public transit, and also transforming how police officers conduct stops in the United States, that they can't just do suspicion-based stops for vehicles that haven't committed any crime. So this is kind of, you know, part of the overall plan. Um, But yeah, of course, we're going to get critics who will say it doesn't go far enough. But as far as I'm concerned, I mean, it's the first program in the United States. Other cities are following suit. I think Los Angeles is doing a program. Uh, I think someone in New York City is considering a a variant of this. Um, But if it works, I mean, this could potentially reduce 67% of all police interaction between police and civilians in the United States. And, um, you know, it's just so basic. Like, you know, I'm sure when people first announced that meter maids would exist, people were like, oh, God, what, you mean a cop's not going to make sure your meter's not paid on time? Now it's like it's just normal. No one cares. Are meter maids shooting people? Not that I'm aware of, right? So, I mean, I'm not saying that it's just a matter of removing the gun, but yes, removing the gun is a major part of it. So well, what's the, what's the timeline as far as if this is going to come together? One year. Okay, well... One year. We got one year to make a, trans- a Department of Transportation and one year to start shifting this to all in one year. And then and, and all within the same year, we have to shift the police duties out to a unarmed traffic division. Um, you got to hold our mayor to account. got to hold our city council to account. You got to hold our city manager to account. They say they're all down for this. It sounds like a really cool idea, a little sweet talking and a lot of convincing and a lot of people are on board. But we, we got we to gotta hold them to account. It doesn't stop with just getting... The declaration that we're going to do this pass, it means we actually have to do it. But but we you might you might see this rolled out starting summer twenty twenty one. Hopefully, I mean by then the department should be made and we should be seeing what the prototype would look like. Yeah, cool. Uh, okay, so that's that's basically all I have here. Uh, we're running pretty long. Any, any any final thoughts? No, I think that's about it. I mean, we're gonna I'm gonna do more podcasts, so we don't have to go through everything in the entire world right now. Yeah, exactly. So uh, look forward to Berserkly, wherever hell Daryl's going to call it. Uh, Daryl has uh, an article in, in Curbed coming out pretty soon. Uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, uh, you can just type in Daryl Owens Berkeley and you'll see tons of coverage about it. It's already been extensively covered. Uh, I think Forbes and New York Times have the best coverage on this idea. Cool, 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 cool. Okay, well, thanks for being here. Uh, yeah. We have been hearing from Daryl Owens of East Bay for everyone. If you want to listen to this episode or any previous episode of the Henry George Program, just head to the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford.